We're going to be looking at a church community today. I've entitled the lesson, Components of a Church Community Building an Enclave. I happen to notice I made a grammatical error in the title. Please forgive me for forgetting the N. But uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at the what it, what it takes to build a vibrant church community in a, in our particular frame of history in the United States of America. So this is a topic that is has been visited before. In fact, it's been visited before by myself. I am not speaking on this topic for the first time. However, it is one that I think is extraordinarily important and there probably will be some redundancy for those of you who've been around here long enough to hear me speak on this topic probably within the last year. So I apologize for the redundancy, but with that proviso, I'd like to just throw out the thought that, that this is an area that, that is extremely important and there are many aspects to this area of, of thinking and study and sometimes important topics need to be revisited again and again before we begin to really settle into our minds all of the different aspects and why they are important. So with that proviso, let's just jump into our discussion here this morning. <clears throat> so by way of introduction, you probably are, the, are aware that if you are a Caucasian person, that is, if you are white, and if you are Christian, if you are those two together, that is, if, you're, if you are a Bible-believing person, and you take the Bible at face value, and you really believe and try to apply Scripture to the best of your understanding, and if you are a person of a Caucasian background, you are a white person, and so this is a, 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 a reality that has a racial ethnic component. So if that is describing you, then you also probably know that the spiritual and the political atmosphere of this new century is really set against you. Very much so. And in my view, it really demands a new survival strategy. Amen. We can't be thinking the way we were in the 17, 1800s, or even the 1900s. Right. We have to alter our thinking somewhat from the way we might have been thinking in 1960, or 1970, or even 1980. Amen. And I believe we have to consider... A, a new dynamic and a new strategy for, for survival. And I say survival because the, the forces that are arrayed against us are pretty strong. Amen. Now, they're not sovereign. They're not all-powerful. Read Psalm chapter 2 and you'll understand that God is sovereign and is all-powerful. But that's not to say that the forces against us aren't, uh, <laughs> aren't intimidating at times. So I do believe that what we've got to do is we have to think a little differently, and this involves developing a distinctive and segregated community of faith. Amen. We have to be distinctive. We've got to be thinking in terms of segregation. We've got to be thinking in terms of communities. Now, one of the problems for those of us who are believers that the white Caucasian folk represent the Israel of the Bible, that we are the genetic and literal offspring of the ancient Israelites, for those of us that follow that frame of view, from that, that begin with that frame of reference, one of the distinct problems is we are somewhat atomized. That is to say, we tend to remain in isolation by family groups and by households. 
And we have this strong reluctance, it seems to me, to come together to form something like a community or something like a congregation. Now, I've been using the word enclave for a while. And for those that are not familiar with it, many of you probably are, for those who are not familiar with it, an enclave is an old word that simply means something along this line. It is a community that is a bit like an island. It is a community that is distinct within itself, but it is surrounded by a larger society or a culture that is probably unfriendly. It's hostile. And because that larger society and culture is hostile, the enclave has to have a de defensive quality about it. It has to have the internal resources, the internal intellectual, internal physical, internal emotional, internal spiritual resources to maintain its own distinctiveness in the midst of a relatively hostile, larger environment. So, building an enclave is what we ought to be about, in my opinion. And I think that's the strategy that will take us forward. Now, I didn't think this strategy up. Other people have described it before me, and they've done a pretty good job of it. But it's a strategy that is different from America of 1950 or 1960, or even 1980. We didn't need the enclaves. We didn't need to be defensive islands in the midst of a hostile society because 1950 was not hostile if you were a white Caucasian Christian who believed in the Bible. It was growing a bit hostile by 1980 or 1990, but the level of hostility is such now and the demographics of the nation have changed to such a degree that I think it is unfeasible to roll the clock back. Amen. And if you say, well, I'd like America to go back to the way it was in 1985 when I was a boy, or when I was a teenager, or when I was a young man, I don't believe that's going to happen. And you say, well, you're sure to discourage. I really don't mean to be a, a a person of discouragement or depression, what I mean is just, I just mean to start from the, rea the, the reality of the matter. I don't think it's going to happen, let alone roll the clock back to 1950. <laughs> so I think what we have to have is a new strategy so we can be optimistic, so we can be hopeful, so we can have some, a, a vision for the future that we can lay out for young people, for those that are still going to be around in 20 or 30 years and say, look, you can have a bright future. Amen. Your bright future won't be like 1985, but it might still be for you personally and for your household, a very happy and bright future. So that's what we've got to do. And those are my preliminary thoughts. So let's go to uh, the, the lesson now and begin one section at a time. I think the most important feature of having a successful church community, a successful enclave, an enclave that is spiritually rooted, is we have to be able to identify who we are and why it's important that we need to be separate. That is to say, it's a question of identity. And we've got to be able to answer effectively the question, who are we? Who are we? 
But first off, I believe we've got to believe, have a sense. We must believe, we must have this overwhelming sense that our identity is ex of extraordinary value. Yes. Our, our identity is of great, extraordinary, high value. And it's worthy of defending. When I say our identity, we have a couple of components to our identity. Yes, we have a component that says, I am a Christian and I believe in the Bible. We have an identity that is ethnic, that is racial, that is genetic, that is to say, I am a white person, and I like that, and I'm happy, and I'm pleased to be that, and I think I am worthy of being reproduced. Amen. That it's good that I have children or grandchildren that are likened to me. Amen. That's good, that's right, that's proper and not succumb to the guilt that says because you are a white person you are not worthy of descendants you are not worthy of reproduction that of course is absurd and ridiculous and we've got to really mean it when we when we say that we can't just quietly say it. we've got to be willing to put put mean that, that mean it and, and and put some effort and and muscle behind that sense so there are many passages in Scripture that I could go, and you are familiar, this congregation being relatively well informed, there are many places in Scripture we could go, and you can identify some of them. But I'd like to call your attention to just one passage. I don't want to overwhelm you with lots of passages of Scripture, because we really don't have time to get through everything I'd like to discuss. But I would call your attention to a passage you are familiar with. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Now, when I read these verses, you're going to recognize them, I believe. But I'd like you to read them and recognize them and reflect upon each word that is selected. When Peter, the apostle, wrote these words, beginning of verse 9, what was the, with precision, what was he trying to say? He says, you are chosen, you, ye, ye are a chosen generation. Now, the word generation, you can check all your concordances you want. It does mean a kind, a race, an ethnic group. That word generation does mean that. You're a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. Now, even if the word generation wasn't there, the subsequent words in verse 9 tell us that you're talking about a, a, a people, a distinct ethnic racial group of people. So you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, a peculiar people. Without dissecting all those words, he is, in his own redundant way, saying the same thing four different ways. Amen. You are special. You are of value. You are of ext extreme value. You have been chosen of God to be of extreme and great value. And so you need to act like it. It's not an exhortation for arrogance. <laughs> That's not the point. It's an exhortation to recognize your own value. And then, it's, it, it, then the exhortation now moves a slightly different direction. Now that he's got your attention, he says, You should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's simply saying, look, you need, to, you need to be grateful to our Father in heaven who selected you in his providence and for his reasons he picked you. So you ought to feel special. Hallelujah. You ought to feel extra grateful. 
And to emphasize that, in verse 10, he says, Which in time past were not a people, but are now a people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. They say, well, wait a minute, I don't understand what he's talking about there. Well, he's, that verse 10 is, is, all, is an almost word-for-word -word quote from the book of Hosea. And what the book of Hosea was laying out is that God had picked Israel. Israel was unfaithful, but God in his grace was going to take Israel and was going to rework them and make them a good and wholesome people again. Amen. In short. Now, when Peter picked Hosea, he was writing to the, the people that were reading this. Who are the people who were reading 1 Peter, this epistle? Well, they had to be Israelite. They had to be people who were Hebrew. They had to be people who were familiar with the Old Testament. That's right. They really weren't. These, the, 1 Peter really wasn't written to the converts to Christianity in the first century that had no familiarity with the Old Testament. Why? It's because if you back up just a little bit, we, I just read for you verse 9 and 10. And I told you verse 10 is a quotation from the Old Testament. But verse 6 is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. Verse 7 is a quotation from the Old Testament. Verse 8 is a quotation from the Old Testament. And there are others in this letter. Peter was clearly writing to somebody who had strong familiarity with the Old Testament and considered the Old Testament to be a book of great value and authority. And that's why he quoted from it. Amen. He quoted from it because he said, look, this is what the Old Testament says. This is an authoritarian source, so you should believe what I'm saying. That's why I'm quoting from the Old Testament. Amen. Now I could go on and on about why First Peter was written to Israelites who had a sense of who they were at that time. But we, didn't, but we need to move on. So the first thrust I'm trying to get out here, and this might be one of the most important features of this Bible discussion today, is that you've got to believe that your ethnic racial identity, along with your religious identity, along with your belief system, along with the fact that you're a Christian, you've got to believe that that's of extraordinary value, worthy of defending, or you're not going to try to defend it. You've got to have a reason. You've got to have a point. You've got to have a purpose. We wonder why many of our people marry outside their race. We wonder why it's not a big deal to them. It's because they don't hold their own racial, ethnic background to be of any significant value. So what's, why should we care if it gets lost? Well, I care. And you better care as well. Or it will be lost if you don't give your children and your grandchildren a reason why they ought to marry someone likened to themselves, then some of them won't. That's it. Yes. <laughs> That's it. So you've got to do your best. Amen. You can't control it all. They've got to come to that sense as well, pretty much on their own. But you've got to give it a try while you've got the ability to Put a few ideas into their head when they're young. You've got to do your best. All right. Second, in terms of identity and building a, some kind of a community, some sort of an island, some sort of an enclave that has a structure that can defend itself in a hostile environment, we need a theological basis that sustains internal 
unity. We've got to have some sort of internal unity. And if we don't have a theological basis for that unity, we're going to be an ad hoc collection of ideas that take us all kinds of different directions. So there's got to be some sort of a basis for that. We've got to have a theological basis. Now, I could talk about this a long time as well. But if I may quote from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, we'll find that Paul is talking to a church community. He writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, which is a Christian church living in a highly pagan and hostile world. And he gives them a formula a means and a mechanism whereby they can have some theological unity within themselves. And he doesn't give them a, a list of beliefs. What he gives them is a structure by which they can clarify and define their beliefs. And so in Ephesians 4, writing to that particular enclave in the city of Ephesus, Paul says, and describes what God has given to the church, to that church community. He says, look, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.11, He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And the purpose of all of those offices, the purpose of those people functioning in those capacities, is for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, into the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So to improve the internal unity and structure of the church body, the church community, the enclave, shall we say, at the church at Ephesus, Paul said, you've got these offices, you've got these people, and their job is to teach, to edify, to instruct, to exhort, to improve us all, to help improve us all. They're not going to do it all by themselves. Amen. To point us in the right direction so that we can have some internal unity. Alright, item three. In terms of identity and who we are, I believe we've got to possess a clear line of demarcation between us and them. Now, we live in a world that really tries to throw out this idea that the whole world doesn't need any us's and any of them's. There are no us and them, they say. Look, they're like, look, we, we, we should have this grand United Nations organization and we'll just dissolve all the international borders and dissolve all the international differences and, and everybody's just going to be the same. And if we're all the same, we're all going to get along and we'll all be happy because there won't be anything for us left to squabble about. Well, what a, what a stupid idea. Okay. It, to an uninformed person, it might sound pretty good. Or to a person who doesn't understand human nature, it sounds pretty good. It's an old idea. It really goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. The origin of that idea can be traced very plainly, in my opinion anyway, right to the Tower of Babel. So it's an old idea that's been with us forever. Forever. And it's going to be with us till the very end. But the problem is, with, with human nature being what it is, God has said, look, if there's going to be some measure of peace in the world, we actually have to have different nations. Because the problem is, with human nature being what it is, when you have one organization and one group of people telling everybody else what to do, you have one bureaucracy, one head, one master, pride will cause that leadership structure, if it's the only leadership structure, to become completely corrupt. It will become utterly corrupt, 
And instead of having one world in which everything's going great, you're going to have one world in which everything is going totally wrong. It works absolutely the opposite. And the only way to introduce some kind of accountability is you've got to have different centers of power and structure. That's the only way. Our, our framers were wise enough to say we ought to have that in our, in our national government. That's why the Constitution was devised with these different centers of power to separate the centers of power so they would hold each other accountable. All right, well, we're kind of moving away from that. But in terms of the entire planet, in Deuteronomy it tells us, and going back to the Tower of Babel, God separated the nations. He purposely separated and made distinct power bases and distinct nations so that they would hold each other accountable towards some small measure of tranquility and peace. So instead of cataclysmic disasters, you just have relatively small problems that arise, and they will always be there. So there's always going to be wars and rumors of war. We'll never escape that. We never have. But we won't destroy ourselves completely if we follow God's plan. Any, at any rate, I've digressed a bit. The point I'm trying to make for us is this. There's always going to be an us and a them. Always going to be an us and a them. And if there's always an us and a them, we need to be able to maintain that distinctiveness. Not because we're necessarily hating everything about the them. It's not about them being the, the, the worst, horrible, and most pitiful thing out of the pit of hell. That's not what we're really trying to say about them. We're just trying to say, hey, we're us, and you're not us, and that's okay. It's okay if you're them and we're us. Now, Scripture is pretty clear about this. It's not hard to understand. And so in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, we have another exhortation to another church at the church of Corinth, which was a little Christian church in the middle of a hostile pagan world. And Paul gives this advice. He said, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? You've got to have a distinction. There's got to be this, 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 this demarcation between us and them. And I, there's much more I could take time, but just note verse 17. For a moment, look at 2 Corinthians 6.17. You'll recognize this. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. Amen. Be separate. Separateness is, is okay. In fact, it's good. In fact, it's needed. Yes. It's necessary. Because if there's no line between us and them, why don't we just join them? Yeah. Well, if we join them, we'll be swallowed up and there won't be any of us. And I, I think that there ought to be some of us. And the only way you and I are going to maintain our us is we've got to make an effort. We've got to draw the line of distinction, and we've got to try to defend that. Now, all that being said, there is also an evangelical impulse the Scripture plainly teaches. Now, that evangelical impulse has parameters and it has certain limits, but it is a strong impulse that we don't want to completely lose. So the fourth point I'd like to throw out is this. We do need to have an evangelical attitude toward many of them, yet it does not unravel us. Alright, so 1 Peter 3, verse 15, you'll recognize this. It says, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts. 
And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we, we need to be ready to have reasonable and good answers to those who say, you know, there's something about you that I've noticed that is interesting to me. Could you tell me more? Well, be ready to answer that question. There, then there's lots of passages in the New Testament that, that remind us of the importance of an evangelical impulse. But that impulse, that evangelical impulse, cannot be something that erases the line of distinction or that undermines our internal sense of value of the us because it'll unravel and destroy us. So, we, so, so that's why I would say, okay, look, we need to have an evangelical impulse, yes, toward many of them. Not necessarily all of them, all right? And I could carry on for a while, but you might recall a passage that says, Give not, how's that passage go? That which is holy unto the dogs. Cast not your pearls before the... Okay. So there are people out there that aren't good candidates. That we don't want... There are some people out there we don't want to join us. All right, We don't want them to become part of us because they're not really us. They don't have the capability. It's not within them. It's not that we're eager to destroy whatever sense of identity they have necessarily. I'm primarily concerned about our sense of identity. Amen. And our sense of value. If ours is strong, I, I don't need to solve the problems far, 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 far away. Amen. What I've got to do is I've got to solve the problems that are right on my doorstep. Alright. So... To build a, a, an enclave in an island in a hostile community, we have to have a strong sense of identity. And if we don't have that strong sense of identity, there's no point in even beginning. Now, section two. And the second section, is this is a pretty practical area. I'm going to have to kind of move through these quickly. But I believe you're familiar with a lot of these ideas and some of these passages, I hope. I'm calling this section investment. Investment. Now, how do you and I... How do we as individuals make our community better? How do we make our enclave better? How do we make our church community better? How do we make this island that we live in better, stronger, more viable, more just more successful internally? What should we be doing? Well, there's a lot to it, but I'll start with natural growth. We need to have a strong desire for natural growth. Uh, there's a verse in the Old Testament that I really love, it, it, and I'm, I don't, I'm not really trying to take it out of context. The general context is talking about the coming judgment of God. But in Joel chapter 1, 3, you'll just notice something. When you've got a message to communicate, when you have a message just to communicate that's worthy of communication, look at how Joel, the prophet Joel, says it ought to be communicated. He says, Tell ye your children of it, let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That's four generations. So Joel says, if you've got a message worth telling... Tell it to four generations. That's a lot of interconnectivity through the passing of time. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an important concept there. And the, the, the concept is, is involving natural growth. Natural growth. Now, hopefully, if I get to the end before the clock runs out, I'll talk a little bit more about the, the importance of natural growth from a, from a real practical point of view. All right, second. 
We ought to desire a spirit of internal tranquility. That should be a high priority to you, that we have internal tranquility. The reason it's so important we have internal tranquility is because we've got a lot of external hostility. And we can't do much about that necessarily. That's why it's so important to be internally at relative peace one with another. And if things arise that are not peaceful one with another, we need to do our very best to try to, to try to get there quickly. So I'll just give you two exhortations on this area. You're not new, this won't surprise anybody, but they're important. And because they're so important, and because of human nature, and because of the weaknesses that each of us possess, it's, it's good that these be thrown out on the table for your reflection for a moment. Number one is this simple question you need to ask yourself. How often do I slip into gossip? How often do I slip into gossip? Now, I don't need to tell you that gossip is a problem, and gossip is always going to be a, a bit of a problem, and that all of us hate gossip when we are the, uh, on the bad end of it. <laughs> all right. But it's a common human problem, and it's a problem for especially those who have a gift in which they just end up doing a lot of talking because you just can slip into it so easily. But just let me read these verses to you in terms of on this sense of the value of internal tranquility and the value of a, of a, of a church community being internally stable and strong. You know, Mark chapter 3 has these words. They're well-known words. Jesus, in the context of another story... And in a completely other area, ask these questions, though, that have broad application. Jesus asked these rhetorical questions. He says in verse 24 of Mark 3, If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So he throws those thoughts out there. Well, we, we understand that. You understand in your own household, in your own family... How important it is to have some measure of pretty steady, stable, internal tranquility. Otherwise, that family, that household is going to break apart. And the same is true for any church community. So all of us have a really strong incentive to try to maintain that. Second, and relating to that, we have this business of, of faults and problems and how do we handle them. So Galatians 6.1 has this simple advice, well-known advice, but it's important to, uh, to put this out on the table real quick. Galatians 6.1 reads like this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spirits will restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So... Do I identify the faults of others? If I, feel, if I observe a fault in another person, I feel like I must identify that with them. I must bring that up to them. Do I do it really with the spirit of meekness like this verse exhorts? And it, 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 that's not easy to do, but that's the rule of thumb to find solution and maintain some measure of internal tranquility. So let's go to the third area of investment. The third area of investment is, is the fact that each of us have different roles that we occupy different tasks that lie before us. And that's natural and right and proper. So I believe we ought to have a healthy respect for the roles and the offices that we each occupy. 
I'm going to read from you from Titus. Now, Titus describes several different classifications of people. Titus chapter 2. Now, as I read through this, everybody's going to fit into one of these categories. There's going to be the older men, and there's going to be the older, younger men, and the older women, and the younger women. Now, I don't know if you're an older man or a younger man. I sure don't want to try to tell any ladies here whether they're an older woman or a younger woman. But you can decide. Because you're going to fit in one of these categories, and Titus is giving some instructions to these different places in life, these positions in life. And they're worthy of consideration. All right, so here we go. Titus 2, verse 1. Titus starts by saying, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. The aged men should be, here's a list for them, if you're an aged man, sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, charity, and patience. That's a pretty good list to work on. How are you doing in those areas, all you men who are old enough to, let's just say, you've got gray hair? <laughs> then he goes on to the aged women. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becoming holiness. And here's their list. Not false accusers, not givers to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers of home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Amen. So we've got a list there for older women and younger women. So you decide which you are, but that's, these are some things that you can work on, that you can consider. Now we have the younger men. Verse 6, young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That's worthy of thinking about, young men. Do you have sound speech that cannot be condemned? Could someone condemn what comes out of your mouth? Is there filth that comes out of your mouth? Well, moving along. That he is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And then it even mentions servants. Servants. In today's context, we would probably say employees. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, to please them well in all things, not answering again. Not purloining means stealing little things. <laughs> but showing all good fidelity, loyalty toward your employer that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Well, th th we could carry on there as well. But we have family, we have gender. And we all have roles to play. Of course, we have leadership. In, a, in any community, you have to have leadership. Now, the leadership has, a, has something they've got to be thinking about. So let me just read a verse here on regarding leadership. 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about the elders, elders in a congregation. It says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Well, that's interesting. Double honor. Gee. Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So that's a position that ought to be held with a measure of, I guess, some esteem and some respect. That's the exhortation there. But if we continue, it does work the other way as well. 
So if you'd like to flip your outline over, let's talk about leadership running the other direction. It turns out that all who are in leadership should be setting good examples of conduct and maintain a measure of transparency. All right, transparency. The transparency in general is probably a good quality for everybody. But it's probably extra important for those who are in some kind of a position of leadership. Transparency. So let's read from 1 Peter chapter 5. This will sober up anybody who is a, a leader or an elder in a church. It says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So here's the advice now to the elders. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. It's, I guess it's really trying to say, don't, don't enrich yourself on the backs of the people that you're supposed to be watching over. Verse 3, neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So watch out against pride and arrogancy. Don't be like, come on, boy, am I really something, you know? So it's an exhortation against the elders here in that respect. Be an example, an example to the flock. So if everyone was modeling your behavior, is, are they doing, is that good? And finally, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now, obviously that applies to the leaders of a church, pastors, elders, and so forth. But really, I believe it's an important rule for all people who are in any capacity of leadership. And I would just like to put this out for the men of the congregation, particularly who are fathers and husbands. It's important for the men of the congregation, you are fathers, you're husbands, you're a leader in your home, whether you really ask to be or not. And you're, there, it's important that your life has a measure of transparency and is a good example of conduct. You've got, you might as well just set your heart to be somewhat transparent. Because the people that live in your house are soon going to know all about you anyway. So if you've got secret faults that you're trying to hide, well, they're going to probably uncover them. But we've all got faults. <laughs> and our faults don't need to be trumpeted in the sky. So that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm simply saying that as, as a leader in any capacity, whether it's in the home men or in a, in a community, or of, of any capacity. Part of good leadership is, is having some measure of transparency and being a good example. You're not going to be a perfect example. And I do need to remind all people that are following a leader, if you're expecting your leader to be a perfect example, you will never find one. Amen. You might be able to construct one in your mind or imagine that someone in history was such a person but they weren't either nonetheless the exhortation stands that that all in leadership need to do their very best to set examples of good conduct now item five yes, we're doing right here. all of us ought to have a love of scripture and that love of Scripture ought to be sufficient for us to be able to feed ourselves. 
we ought to be able to feed ourselves. When I say feed, I'm talking about our spiritual food and the sustenance and the nourishment that we get from the Word of God. So 1 Peter 2.2 says something like this. It says, Newborn babes, as newborn babes, you ought to desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. All right. Now, without going into an analysis of what the milk of the Word is versus the meat of the Word or anything of that nature, just understand that the Word of God helps us grow. That's one of the reasons, out of the Protestant Reformation, they place such enormous emphasis on being a reader, being able to read for yourself, literacy. It was a hallmark goal of the Protestant Reformation that every child should become a good reader and be able to read the Bible in their own language so they can feed themselves. They can feed themselves. If you cannot read the Bible and derive knowledge, wisdom, value from the words of Scripture on your own, if you are incapable of that, you are at an enormous disadvantage in life. You're an enormous disadvantage in your spiritual life. Because thus you're then dependent on others. You're dependent on the minister once a week. You're dependent on the podcast you listen to. Now there are, fortunately, there are alternatives if you really cannot read. But our forefathers were wise in this area. The Puritans placed a tremendous emphasis on being able to read for yourself. That doesn't mean that someone who stands behind a pulpit and gives a Bible lesson, that they don't also have a responsibility to throw out information from the Word of God that is going to be useful to your spiritual life. Because that's what is supposed to be happening even right now as I speak. I shouldn't be wasting your time for, the next, for, for an hour. Okay, so I've got my responsibility. I should study. I should, I should have something worthy of you listening to. I hope it is. <laughs> but you have a duty to feed yourself. And that feeding of yourself means you must be able and you must be committed. Not just able, but committed to reading the Word of God yourself. That is your primary source of spiritual sustenance. That's your primary source of biblical understanding, is what you can derive on your own from opening the pages of Scripture and reading them and understanding them. And the Bible is a complicated enough book that it's needs, you need to be a reasonably good reader. Reasonably good. It's not read, like reading a science, you know, technical scientific journal. But neither is a Dr. Zeus. So, you know, we're... You, you, this is an important point that, that I, I think has to be out there for us. If we're going to be growing in maturity, and if we're going to be able to make an investment in the community. Item number six. Now this sort of springs out of what I just read. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Oh, wait a minute here. Yeah, yeah. Second Peter chapter 2. Go over to Second Peter now. Oh, sorry, that's chapter 1. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse number 5. Now the point I'm going to try to make here is that we all ought to be exercising self-improvement. 
So item 6 really grows out of item 5. And 2 Peter gives us this great list of ascending virtues. 2 Peter, he says in verse 5, Besides this, giving diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. To patience, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So that's a pretty nice list for us to consider. This, this list of rising virtues, which if we possess will keep us from being barren and unfruitful. All right, let's go to item seven. So I ran across something I thought was interesting. So here we go. Our church community can be divided into three types of people. Everybody's going to fit into one of these three categories. So are you ready? Which one are you? Are you number one, number two, or number three? Are you A, are you a nibbler? A nibbler. What's a nibbler? <laughs> It's someone who browses episodically. Their, their involvement in the church is, is a browser. They, they nibble. They nibble at this. They nibble at that. That means that they, they get involved a little occasionally here, occasionally there, show up here once in a while. They are, well, Pastor Gaiman refers to them, I think, as people on the fringe. They're fringy. <laughs> They're nibblers. They're nibblers. All right. Well, then there's the second category. There's the customers. Maybe you're a customer. So what's a customer? A customer are those who come to take advantage of a program. They're regular. They're here all the time, most of the time. They're here because there's a program, there's something happening in the church that they want to take advantage of. So over the years, I know that Mr. Clark, bless his soul, used to talk about the school being a possible program that attracts this category of people. They want to put their children in our church school, so they come to church. If we didn't have the school, they wouldn't show up. We'd never see them. They're only here for the program. They're only here for that particular program. Of course, there's other programs. Every church has got things going on. We have projects. We have things that are happening. That's just the nature of human life. We get together. We do things. Some are more important than others. Some are not terribly important, like fireworks. Okay. Others are more important, like, you know, maybe the choir or our schooling effort or, you know, so there's a variety of things we do, programs we could call them. And that's just what people do when they get together. What are we going to do? Stare at each other? No. Let's do this. Let's do that. That's the way it is. The question is, are you a part of that church community? Are you a part of that enclave? Are you part of that little society that's in this hostile world? Do you recognize the world out there is hostile? 
So you say, well, I want to be part of it. I want to be part of it because it helps me in this little area of life. I'm a customer. All right, so that's the second category. There's a third category, though, worthy of looking at, and that's a shareholder. A shareholder. Those who sacrifice to make things happen. The shareholder is that type of person that gives of time, money, energy to make something happen. They make that program happen. They make this happen. And without the shareholders, everything just falls apart. There is nothing. The shareholders make it go. The shareholders have a stake in it. The shareholders say, boy, I don't want this project, I don't want this church community to fail. I don't want this enclave to take on water and be damaged. I'm a shareholder. I've got an investment in it. The customer may not feel that way. The customer says, well, as long as things are going well, I'm here. If I see something better, though, uh, you know, I might try another, I might try another place. That's the customer. And the nibbler doesn't care at all, hardly. They're just kind of browsing. So, are you a nibbler? Or are you a customer? Or are you a shareholder? I'd say you're, all of us are probably one of those three. And uh, if, if you're just a nibbler, you can become a customer. And you can become a shareholder. The more shareholders we've got, the, the better the community is going to be. And point eight now. You know, there's a principle in Matthew chapter 6 about giving of money. Let me read this. You'll, you've heard these words before. Matthew 6. It's advice about if you're in a position to bless someone else with a financial gift, here's how you ought to go about it. Matthew 6, verse 3. It says, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Huh. So that's how we ought to handle any financial gifts we may give to other folk. All right? I think we could expand that idea, though. We could expand that idea a little bit in this respect. I think that all of us, having whatever talents and natural aptitudes that we have, whether you are good, a good speaker, or you're a good fix-it man, or you actually like enjoy cleaning. How many remember Lance? He enjoyed cleaning, and boy, was he good at it. You know, he found fulfillment, satisfaction in making that, that, that floor shine. That's great. So whatever aptitudes God has given you, there's a place in your community, in your church community, in your spiritual enclave, in your island, in the hostile world we live in, there's a place for you to use that aptitude. And I think one of the ways you could use that aptitude, and most of us have more than one. Truth is, you might say, hey, look, I'm good at speaking, so that's all I'm going to do. Well, you might also be good at cleaning. Okay? You might. So don't, don't get in your head that, well, since I'm a pretty good speaker, uh, the only way I'm going to function is when I'm up here in front of everybody. Or I'm a good singer. So anything, the only thing I can contribute is my singing voice in front of everyone where they can all see me and I can be on YouTube. See how many likes pop up? Whoo, 240 likes on that song that I was the soloist in. Whew, that 
hey, look, you probably, you probably have another talent. And you probably ought to be developing that one as well. So I think that we should each find ways to contribute to the community that might not ever be noticed. Nobody ever knows you did it. Nobody knows that you fixed that thingy out there off in the ball field. <laughs> Nobody notices that that repair was made or that that dirty room has all been straightened out and cleaned. Nobody knows who did it. Someone walks in and says, wow, this place looks better. What happened? I don't know. Nobody seems to know. But we're all grateful, right? We're all grateful. God knows, you see. So in the same respect that, you, that God exhorts us to use our financial resources to bless another person in secret, and God will reward us accordingly, Amen. we can do the same thing with whatever talents we have, and think about what you can do that nobody will notice except God himself. Hallelujah. And that will be your reward. And that will be the value, maybe, that you can add that really needs to be added. All right, finally, on the section three, I'd like to take a couple of quick minutes just to give you a couple of examples that we have a little familiarity with that might be of some value. So, over the course of American history, most of us are, we've got enough knowledge about the history of the United States of America the last 200 years. Um, there are a number of religious traditions that have developed in our country. I mean, most of us have come out of a Protestant background. We're ex-Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian or whatever. There's a few of us that came out of a different religious tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition. There's a few of us that um, might even have an atheist in our ancestry. I don't know, but that, that's the point. But there's a lot of other religious streams that have been a, a present in the United States, in the history of the United States. Most of them generally have been of a more or less biblical or more or less Christian background until the last, say, 40 or 50 years when other, other dominant streams have come forward to, to overshadow the Christian background of the United States. All right, so there are, within the United States, some, a couple of good examples of enclaves, religious enclaves that have prospered in this country in the past. Now, there are a host of religious enclaves that we can find in Europe. We could talk about the Hussites out of Bohemia. We could talk about the Waldensians in the Alps. We could talk about the Lollards in England. There's a whole bunch of religious enclaves that, that, that God utilized one way or another to make an important contribution in church history that can be found in Europe. But, you know, we're not so in tune with medieval history or even Reformation history, so let me just throw out a couple for this country. Two enclaves you may have a little familiarity with, and I'd like to throw out a few highlights of each of them. The first one is the Amish. Now, I don't want to become an Amishman, and I don't think God's calling me to become an Amishman, and I frankly think if I became an Amishman, God would be disappointed with me. I don't think that's my calling, my design, my purpose, and I wish the Amish would change their ways in some respects. However, however, there is something we can learn from the Amish. 
Now let's look at their distinctiveness. They have a very clear distinctiveness. It's very clear, it's very obvious, you can spot it from 100 yards away. So their distinctiveness rests on a narrow lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's all about the lifestyle. All about the lifestyle. It's really not about their theology. Their theology is nothing special, remarkable, or unusual. It's about the lifestyle. That's my understanding of the Amish. Now one great thing about the Amish is that their family life feeds growth from the bottom up. As the decades and centuries have gone by, since the Amish got their foothold in the United States of America 180 years ago or whenever it was, there's a lot more of them now than there used to be. And it's primarily because of their family life. They have large families and they've simply just grown in number. Now their economic model is simple. It's pretty restrictive. You don't find Amish computer programmers as far as I know. You don't find Amish CPAs as far as you know. I don't think there's very many Amish diesel mechanics. Maybe there, I, don't, I know there's a few sects that have different rules and so maybe, they're, maybe, they're, maybe they have ways of dabbling in, in mechanics. Their lifestyle is very, uh, their economic model is very simple, it's pretty restrictive. Their evangelical outreach, near as I can tell, is pretty negligible. That may not be true of a few branches of them, but in general, I think their evangelical outreach, their attempt to convert others, is pretty negligible. Nonetheless, if we think about their success, they've had some success. And their success gives them some dominance in local areas. There are counties within the United States where they are pretty much dominate. And they can live the way they want. And if a county official shows up and says, you know, I'm not really happy with the way you're doing this, the county official's probably wasting his time. Because there's so many of those Amishmen around that the county official is, oh, I where do I turn? I can't, I can't deal with all of you. So he probably gets back in his car and drives back to where he came from. For the most part. For the most part. So they, they have some pretty good successes that, that are, maybe there's a thing or two we can learn from the Amish. In terms of having an enclave. A segregated society with their own set of values and priorities in a hostile world. Now another one. Another one that you're familiar with. I've mentioned before and that's the Mormons. Or as they call themselves, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Now, if you look at the Mormons over the last 150, 160 years, since their development in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, it's a pretty impressive record the Mormons have put together. Very impressive. At least, I, I kind of think so. <laughs> now, their distinctiveness is not really so much the lifestyle. Their distinctiveness rests on a certain worldview and a very structured hierarchy. In the Mormon world, if you're a, a member of that community, you do what they tell you you ought to be doing. They have a clear, structured hierarchy all the way to the top. Some of their ideas are a little goofy. Some of them are not. The point is, though, that they have a lot of success. They've had a lot of success. Now, again, one of the things that I think has fed their success is their family life. 
Again, the family life has fed the growth of the Mormons in the last 160 years from the bottom up. They have a lot of children, like the Amish. Now, their economic model is pretty vibrant, it's pretty diversified. Because it's so diversified, it's worked in their favor in a lot of ways. So, for example, if you're an Amishman and there's a lot of Amish in your community, the county commissioner might show up and give you a little grief. You'll probably drive away, like I said. But if you're a Mormon in a Mormon county, the county commissioner is Mormon. And when he shows up, that's a happy day for you because he's there to give you some good news. He's not there to give you any grief. Now, the evangelical outreach is pretty aggressive. It's pretty wide. Now, I think in terms of their outreach, they have crossed some barriers, some ethnic and racial barriers that's undermining their, their future. But that's another point. They're very diversified in their economic structure and in their, in their economic growth. They're very aggressive in how they want their community to grow. You'll find Mormons who are, you know, in, 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 in every single trade and profession, you will find Mormons and you will find them near the top. Every, every trade, every profession, lots of them in the areas where they live. Now that success means, in terms of success, it doesn't just give them dominance in a local area. They have actually enjoyed dominance for many, many, many decades now over a multi-state region of this country. They, they, control, they have controlled, in American history, state legislatures. They have controlled governorships. They control practically entire states within this country. Now, in terms of, a, of an enclave that started rather small in the 1830s and 40s and 50s, they have achieved an enormous amount. Now, that's a pretty, so, so, th that's a pretty high mark for you and I to say, well, <laughs> can we do that? I, I, I'm no fool. I don't expect us to have enjoy that kind of success in my lifetime, or even the lifetime of my children, most likely. My point is this, though. If these two different models of enclaves in a hostile environment can enjoy certain levels of success, and there's no reason that we can't enjoy certain levels of success. Our success may not be so stunning that we control a state or a state legislature, or even to enjoy uh, an entire county and dominate an entire county. But we can enjoy quite a bit of success in a world that's, that's exceedingly hostile and is only going to grow more hostile to us in the future, at least in my personal opinion. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a bright and happy future for our young people and our children and the unborn children. Amen. And in many respects, that takes us back to the, one of the final points regarding these two enclaves that have been successful. Much of their success has literally been, in my view, because of the large families that they have generation after generation and gener after generation. They be simply become numerically dominant on the ground where they're at. 
They become so thick on the ground that they enjoy a lot of blessings. It's their vibrant family life that feeds them from the bottom up. So I think that's one of the big lessons that we've got to get in our mind. And, and I know you're here, you've heard Pastor Gaiman say it a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times. There's a reason for that. It's an important component. Now, I, I, want, I don't want anyone here to leave thinking, well, if I, you know, I'm, I'm an unmarried person, so I can make no contribution. That's not true. Because we're all kind of working in this together. You know, we're, we're, this, is, this is our nest, and we're sharing this nest. Each of us has have things we can contribute. So with God's help, all of us can make a contribution that's important, and all of us can have a, a part in a growing community, a church community, that has a vision, a purpose, and a destiny that God can do great things with. Well, thank you for your time and your patience today. That concludes this study. Come into the light.